Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. The meaning of Scripture is plain and straightforward. It is intricate and detailed, yes. It takes time and effort to digest, yes. It presents arguments that demand intellectual engagement, yes. But all this must never be confused with complexity. As we often say on the podcast, you do not need a seminary degree to understand the Bible. You may need help from someone who knows languages or another who is familiar with history only because so much time has passed since the Bible was written. But the original audience did not need the help of scholars to get the message. The average Joe heard and immediately understood. Why else would the Romans have been so terrified of St. Paul's Gospel? Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 18, verses 23 to 35. I am very excited to announce The Way, a new podcast on the Ephesus School Network hosted by Father Dustin Lyon. Every Friday, Father Dustin will explore scripture to rediscover Christianity so that we can all learn to walk in the way of the Lord. Richard and I are looking forward to the first episode of The Way and plan to share it here when it becomes available. To learn about all of our podcasts, please visit EphesusSchool.org. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 335 of the Bible as Literature podcast. Father Paul often says on his Thursday program that you don't need to explain the reading to the people. If you simply help people understand the grammar and the vocabulary and the context of the reading, the reading speaks for itself. It's important to always remember that in its original historical setting, the meaning of the text was plain to everyone within earshot. Even in English, all these centuries later, there are numerous examples of parables in translation that are so straightforward they don't require a homily. And the temptation always for the priest in that situation is to talk about something else and try to relate it to the reading or just skip the reading altogether. And that, of course, is a very severe mistake because the plain and simple meaning of a text is the objective of Scripture for the hearer. They don't want our human complexity. The writers of Scripture want God's clear directive made plain for the assembly. For those who don't know, the history of the sermon came from just a simple explanation. As Jews no longer understood Hebrew, there was translation. 
And for the Jews who were Aramaic-speaking, during the assembly you'd have somebody read the text in Hebrew, and then you would have another person translating it into Aramaic. One of the rabbinic boundaries around this practice is you had to have two different people, because it always had to be clear what was the Word of God and what was the translation. The Targumon, that would be the person who was giving the so-called sermon, really was just a translator just to make sure that people understood the readings. It would be like how in many of our churches, you would have someone read the epistle in Greek, and then you'd have them read the epistle in English. That would be your sermon originally. Okay, now you've heard it in a language that you understand, so go now do it. But we in our generation want to have this kind of explanation and the way that things are tied together and that sort of thing. People have moved away from the meaning of the text in context, in sequence, written by an author with characters and scenes and background and, as you said, Father, grammar and vocabulary. Ultimately, our purpose is just to make the text as it stands understandable. It has to begin with this text as the reference, and so the better you are grounded in this text, the stronger a reference it can be for what you're going to do with it. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. One of the things that stands out in these first two verses of the end of chapter 18, what we're treating as the end of chapter 18 in our study of this section, is that we're dealing once again with a slave, but you can see that slaves have a relationship with their master that in some cases involves money. Slaves might borrow money from a master. They might be charged with using the master's resources to run the household, to conduct business in the city. There are different types of slaves. And I think this is important to call out because very often when we hear the word slave, when it is translated correctly as it is here in verse 23, we automatically think of the way that Americans conducted slavery in the U.S. There are some similarities, but slaves of different stations had different advantages in the Roman Empire. They had different functions within the household, and understanding that difference makes it easier to transpose Paul's use of the term in a Roman context to our understanding of its implications for our household, our church communities in 2020. The other important thing when you're talking about the word slave in the New Testament, Paul actually uses the term slave in Galatians to demonstrate to the Jewish community that they are equal to the Gentiles before God. This is critical. Barnabas in Acts demonstrates his submission to Paul's gospel, when he lays his wealth before the feet of the apostles to be shared with everyone equally. Now, the way Paul uses the term as an equalizer is by pointing out that in the Roman system of slavery, your own child from your loins was a slave or equal to a slave in your household until the time of adoption. So it's not the same thing. The New Testament uses the term to insist that there's no difference 
between Jew or Gentile, black or white, Christian or Muslim. There's no difference. But it does so not by lifting up the oppressed, but by putting down the oppressor. It's a big difference in the New Testament system as compared to other ideologies that try to grapple with the problem of human relations and racism. When we hear slave and we remember what Paul taught about the difference between the son and the slave, our mind imposes because we think, oh, he's no longer a slave because he's a son. So therefore he can what? Go and do whatever he wants? No, no, that's not what it means. That's the significant piece. The difference that Paul draws between the slave and the son is the inheritance. In this passage, they're slaves because they're borrowing money from their king, from their lord. A son doesn't borrow money from the father and then he puts it in his ledger book because he's part of the household. In this passage, it's important that they're slaves because they are subject to the king and subject to repaying him if they borrowed money from him. This is the difference between being a son and being a slave in that you are part of the inheritance as a son, but it doesn't let you off the hook for doing the will of the father. Now, one of the things that I find so striking about this passage is, don't forget, this is about Peter saying, when am I done forgiving my brother. Jesus comes back, and this gives me shivers, with the kingdom of heaven. Remember, we've been saying a long time, kingdom of heaven is an important theme all throughout Matthew, and it's disappeared for a while. And I've mentioned a couple times that, like, you know, we haven't seen this for a while. Here it comes, and it's specifically to teach Peter the lesson of who he belongs to who he is a slave to, and what duty he has to his brother when Peter is trying to get himself off the hook. So as Peter is trying to get himself off the hook, Jesus, through his words, transports Peter into the kingdom of heaven. If you want to be a member of this kingdom, if you want to be a citizen, here are the expectations for you. The key here, with the way the parable is set up by Jesus, is that Peter should understand clearly at this point that his status with respect to his master, Jesus, and the kingdom of the heavens is tenuous at best. He fell well short of the expectations set forth in Leviticus, and then tried to use Leviticus to get off the hook from what Jesus was teaching. But now, the fact that Jesus is still speaking with him means that Peter is being given a chance. The test of the following parable is, what are the implications of that second chance? And this applies also to the lost sheep. You were brought back into the fold. Is it a free ride? Or are there strings attached? But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had and repayment to be made. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, 
and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. Very straightforward. Everybody who heard this understands what it means. The guy was in debt. He begged for mercy. He was about to lose everything, but the master showed him mercy. Peter, to your point just a moment ago, Richard, who's struggling with whether or not he's on the hook for the judgment, should understand he's on the hook, understand that Jesus is merciful towards him, and understand, therefore, that he must be merciful to the seven times 70, the Gentiles, the endless number of Gentiles who are being sought out by the shepherd and called back into his flock. Bringing the one back into the flock is exactly what we're talking about here. There is this great debt that the slave held and was not able to contribute. He was actually taking away from the rest of the household. He was taking away from the flock. He was taking away resources. There's this very emotional language, and I think it's interesting because Peter is trying to parse this on a ledger sheet. Okay, we've hit seven times now. Am I now off the hook? Makrothimison. Makro meaning great, and thimison means patience. So be great in patience for me. He plays up that emotional piece, and sure enough, the response is splanknistis, which is he felt this feeling in his gut, this strong feeling. You and I talk about the splankna. He felt that in his gut, and that's why he let him off. This is the biblical way of saying that the Lord, simply out of the goodness of his heart, forgave him. It was simply out of forgiveness. You owed me a lot, but I can see you're really upset. Okay, forget it. No more debt. The slave was lucky. The Lord, the Kyrios, was obviously in a good mood that day. The grace is given not because of anything that the slave did. I mean, the slave just promised that he was going to give it back. That's it. No collateral, no repayment schedule. He just said, I promise, I will. Just please be patient. This is the nature of grace in that, yes, we say, yeah, we really promise this is something that we're going to do. I really feel bad about this. And the Lord is willing to go along with it until we prove him a fool. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. He seized him and began to choke him, saying, Pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you. But he was unwilling and went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. So in the first example... He owed 10,000 talents to his master, and now he found another slave who only owed him 100 denarii. Now, if this verse requires explanation, then you need to go back to grade school. It's not rocket science. Anyone who has a job, anyone who doesn't, I mean, kids in high school can understand the plain meaning of this text. I forgave you 10,000, and you didn't forgive 100 like, what's your issue? You don't even need to study the Greek to get the message here. I mean, the Greek is helpful, as always, Richard, as you pointed out, because it emphasizes the emotional intensity of the ask, which 
connects to the emphatic statement of Leviticus as preached by Jesus that you have to keep going after the one who's put outside. But for heaven's sake, all that drama also shows you how God's mercy is a threat. People talk about a loving God that they make up to excuse themselves from accountability. God's mercy is not free in Matthew. His mercy is like the sword of Damocles over your head. I forgave you a million bucks and you can't forgive this person a hundred dollars? What's your problem? If you don't, as we learned early on in the Lord's Prayer, if you don't forgive others, you had better not expect mercy from me. We talked about the dangerous mechanism that Peter used where he took Torah that was supposed to put him on the hook to take himself off the hook. Jesus is relating this parable in order to put Peter on the hook for the mercy that he has to show others. But you're exactly right, Father. People will flip it around in order to take themselves off the hook. Oh, well, God's going to forgive me 70 times, seven times, so you know, stuff happens. And they let themselves off the hook by saying, God's going to forgive me 70 times seven, instead of remembering that this was specifically given to Peter so that he might forgive others 70 times seven. This is not ultimately about the forgiveness that we have, the forgiveness that we experience, but about the forgiveness that we owe others. When you talk about how clear this is, whether you read the Greek or you read the English, the fellow slave, which I think is interesting, sindulos, we have dulos, which means slave, and sin, which means together. As far as the king is concerned, as far as the Lord is concerned, they're on the same level. They're both slaves, sin dulos. This is what the Apostle Paul calls the people who are serving with him. Significantly, the words that the fellow slave pronounces are precisely the same words in the same order that the slave originally spoke to the Lord. Makrothimison epimi. Great patience have for me. If it weren't obvious to this slave in the story to hear his own words spoken into his ears, to us, the reader at least, hopefully we see that it's the same thing. The same supplication that the slave used to the Lord is the exact words that the fellow slave said to his fellow slave. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, you wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And the word wicked, of course, in verse 32, poniros, should draw your attention to the Lord's Prayer. It should draw your attention also to its technical usage in the Old Testament. The wicked are the ones who disregard the Lord's Torah. It's a specific kind of evil. 
If you are the one who walks in the counsel of the wicked, that means you follow another teaching or you disregard the Lord's teaching and you go astray on the path of righteousness. So this is the judgment playing out. This is the Lord's prayer playing out. The day of temptation in verse 32 is at hand and you have been numbered among the wicked. There is a price to pay. You are on the hook. I forgave you. You did not forgive. And so therefore I don't forgive you anymore. I put you in this household. I brought you into my flock and I can take you out. God's love is not free. His love is free of charge, as we've said before, but it comes with a charge and accountability. This is so important. I'm glad you brought up the Lord's Prayer, and I'm going to build off that because it's not just the poniros that we have from the Lord's Prayer, but the same words of tin ophilin ekinin afikasi. So the same word of forgiving our debts, it's these very words that are used again here. In the Lord's Prayer, where we say, Thy kingdom come, and we say, forgive us our debts, Jesus confronts Peter with the kingdom of heaven where debt is forgiven. I mean, this is the substance of the Lord's Prayer. The language itself forces us to recall what Jesus spoke when we need to pray. That debt that's forgiven is precisely the same debt. It's the same word that's spoken. Now, in the Lord's Prayer, we say, forgive us our debts as we forgive those, as if we forgive and then God forgives. No, 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 no. God forgave first, which puts us on the hook to forgive in the same way that he forgave us. That's the first time mercy is used in this passage. You should have had mercy on your fellow slave because I had mercy on you. Now, this sheep does not want to live within the flock. He wants to run the show in contradiction to what the shepherd is doing. He is, as we talked about in the prophets, the bullying ram who causes a problem for the rest. This is why Jesus talks about, in Matthew, taking aside the one person to make sure that they're on the right path. And if not, maybe bring in a couple more witnesses to make sure that the accusation is sound. But the desire of the shepherd to keep everybody together may ultimately sacrifice one who is bringing danger to the rest of the flock. When there is one who refuses to be part of the flock, you can't force him to have mercy on his brother. You can only teach him to have mercy on his brother, and if he rejects that teaching, then he is no longer a willing citizen of the kingdom of heaven. If there's no judgment, nothing makes sense. Why would anything of value not have a judgment? You set out to do anything. There are standards of measure, and there are mechanisms of accountability, or you don't waste your time. Then you're just playing video games, and even video games have a score. I want to call this out because people are very protective of their loving platonic God that they concoct to feel good about religion. But scripture doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel bad. It's not about how you feel. It's about what you do. And if someone, namely the master, 
and Lord and shepherd of the flock, shows mercy to you, you have no right not to show mercy in the Gospel of Matthew. And his Lord, moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. And again, please, don't get excited about the word heart. I had to suffer through a zillion church school lessons as a child, listening to adults talk about sincerity in verse 35. And it's wrong. It's not about sincerity. It's not about how you feel. I really, really forgive from my heart. Who cares how you feel? Your feelings are irrelevant. Your feelings don't count. The heart here is the place where the law of Leviticus is inscribed so that when you see the leper, you act on an impulse from your heart towards him and show mercy and make sure you do everything you can to bring him inside the fold. This business of forgiving from your heart requires effort beforehand to study, digest, memorize, and be trained in the regurgitation of Scripture until it becomes a physical impulse, the way a mother wakes up when her child cries, without hesitation, without thinking, from your heart. Vis-a-vis the inscription of the law, you show mercy and you forgive. The heart is the core. From the core of your being, you're forgiving. The core of your being doesn't mean your emotions. It means your emotions and everything else. Everything has to be about mercy. Because the only reason you're walking around is because of mercy. The thing that I find so significant here is the punishment that this original slave received was precisely what he promised. He promised, I will repay you everything. And the Lord said, never mind, don't repay me anything. Then he went and tried to shake down his fellow slave, and the king got angry, and he said, all right, Repay me everything then. He's out until he repays. Until he makes his own words true, he's out. But as soon as he makes his words true, it sounds like he has an opportunity to return. So even the shepherd here wants the sheep to return. But if the sheep is so stubborn as to no longer listen to the shepherd, the shepherd can say, okay, Enjoy your own route, enjoy your own path, and as soon as that works out for you, let me know, and when you want to come back to the flock, we can discuss. But the judgment for this slave is to fulfill the very words that he will repay the debt that he incurred. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.